Easter season that uh, can only be from from the Holy Spirit, and um, I want to I want to share that uh, joy with all of you. I, I want to make a note. Patty sends her uh, love and her greetings. She's not able to be here today because uh, we woke up this morning and she went in to wake up Eden and touched Eden and Eden's burning up with a fever. So uh, say a prayer for, uh, for Eden. Uh, but she sends her love and her blessings. I want to uh, begin um, this morning a series that's going to carry us through Palm Sunday, and the series is going to be on reconciliation, reconciliation. And we're going to be speaking as a base for this series from one passage uh, in 2 Corinthians, but uh, each, each message is going to touch a different aspect, and it's going to go from there, and it's going to touch on different scriptures. But, you know, the Apostle Paul... Um, was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant man. Um, and he wrote this book of 2 Corinthians. Some, um, some scholars suggest that the Apostle Paul um, had the equivalent of two doctorates. Uh, he was so brilliant, uh, he literally had the Old Testament memorized in two different languages. Uh, he was fluent in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic and probably Latin. He was a brilliant. He was so brilliant that at one point he was making his defense uh, after being accused. He was making his defense before King Agrippa and Agrippa's sister Bernice, and they were um, descendants of Herod the Great, and that's why he was a king. And the Roman governor, who, whose name was Festus. Uh, called out in the middle of Paul's defense and said, you're crazy, Paul. Your great learning has driven you mad. As he declared the resurrection of the dead. That's how brilliant Paul was. Everybody knew it. Even people who didn't believe in him, didn't see him as an apostle or didn't respect him that way, knew that he was brilliant, brilliant in his mind. But when he, when he spoke to the Corinthians, uh, in, in this case, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, he said, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's tremendous power in the message of the cross. And we're going to be talking about Jesus, 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 and more Jesus as we go through Easter. Because as we proclaim the power of the cross, power is released in our lives. Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. Jesus proclaimed in truth, whether it's somebody who's a minister of the gospel like myself, or whether it's you in the workplace or with your family, when you declare Jesus and him crucified, power is released. Jesus is irresistible. When he's declared in love and power, he's irresistible. There's great power in Jesus. So I want to go to this passage in 2 Corinthians Beginning in uh, chapter 5, verse 14. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, starting in verse 14, and we're going to read through the first verse or two of chapter 6, because this is the end of, uh, of chapter 5. And I'm jumping into a passage here. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. Another version says the love of, lo of Christ constrains us. 
right? Not restrains, but constrains us and compels us, right? For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might, uh, excuse me, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. It contains truths that are so beautiful and so powerful and so life-changing that if they hadn't been written in your holy word, we wouldn't be able to believe them. But God, we do believe them, and we ask you to help our unbelief. We ask you to pour the revelation power of the Lord Jesus Christ into the hearts of everybody here. God, give us ears to hear, and by your Holy Spirit, Lord, give me a tongue to speak that everybody would be blessed and we'd be transformed, not by any effort of our own, but by the power of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Today, there's many facets, many aspects of this passage, but today I simply want to talk about forgiveness. I want to talk about the power of forgiveness and the love of forgiveness that God extends to us in Christ in verses 18 and 19, to go back and touch on them again, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. This is the message of forgiveness. The Apostle Paul over and over repeats this. When he, when he goes and he preaches to the Gentiles, when God first sent him out, he was, and I'm going to talk a little bit about his conversion in a minute, but when he went out, when God sent him 
and Barnabas out from Antioch, and they went. And you can read about this in, in Acts uh, chapters 13 and 14. The first, it was known as the first missionary journey where he went out from Antioch, which is in Syria, and he went up into the, uh, Asia Minor, which is now uh, the country of Turkey. He went through, and if you want to understand, what was it that Paul preached when he went out? Like, what, what did he actually say when he went into these synagogues? He went into these different cities. You can read it because there's an example of his sermon, and it wouldn't have been just what he preached in that one instance, but that's kind of a template that Luke, the author of Acts, is telling us how he preached, and you can find it there in Acts chapter 13. And, and the first thing out of his mouth when he's declaring, once he's convinced them and concluded from proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, he says, through him, forgiveness of sins is declared. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is the holy grail. It's the, it's the great blessing. It's the ultimate that God is accomplishing through Christ and the cross. And there are nuances and beauties that we're going to be exploring in days to come. But when it comes down to it, the ABCs of why Jesus died on the cross, that's forgiveness. God forgives. Now, forgiveness, that word and that concept, that truth, is not restricted, obviously, to the Christian realm. Christianity is not the only faith that talks about uh, forgiveness. And, and the truth of the matter is, uh, you can talk about forgiveness. People talk about forgiveness outside of the realm of, of religion. People go to counselors to try to deal with family problems and issues from their childhood and, and whatnot. And sooner or later, even a secular psychologist, they could even be an atheist, will bring up the matter of forgiveness. We'll talk about the matter of forgiveness one way or another. Goodness, politicians talk about forgiveness, right? I mean, all sorts of people talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is so rare. True forgiveness is as rare as rubies. Everybody knows. True from the heart clean-spirited, sincere, no-strings-attached forgiveness is one of the rarest substances known to humanity. But at the same time, even secular people, even people who don't know Jesus, who aren't in the faith, even people of the world, unbelievers, know that forgiveness is essential. It's essential for successful living. So we're dealing with this. Just, as, just the human condition, just people apart from the faith. We're dealing with this reality that, that we all know deep inside. We all know that we need forgiveness. And we all know that we need to forgive. But we also know that it's rare. And it's, it, it's elusive. It escapes us. Goodness, even in our most intimate relationships, even in marriage, goodness, even in Christian marriage, we know there's supposed to be tender, sweet, mutual approachment. And the rarity of forgiveness 
so often hinders us and is a stumbling block to us. Now, Paul, the apostle, knew this very well. He knew this very well. As he writes about this, he doesn't write this flippantly. He's not looking for flowery things to say. Every single word that he, that he say, says weighs heavy pounds. It weighs heavily on his heart. It's a serious thing to him because of his history. I want you to take a look at Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Acts chapter 7, verse 58, and we can bring it up. It says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is the story of the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was the first deacon. He was known in the early church as the archdeacon. They appointed seven deacons to take care of alms and different things in the early church when that became an issue. And Stephen was first among them. Stephen was a man that was so godly that when they put him on trial for nothing other than his faith, they couldn't refute the wisdom that came from his mouth. And it says his face shone like an angel. God worked miracles through Stephen. But with the word of the Lord in his mouth, he confronted the religious leaders of his day with their sin and the grieving of the Holy Spirit that they were doing. And they wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't listen to it. And they, they literally plugged their ears and screamed at the top of their lungs to drown out the word of the Lord in his mouth. And they dragged him from the court. And they dragged him out of the temple and they threw him outside of the city. And they began to stone him to death. And it says... And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, do you know what that means? Do you know what that really means? It means that the men who wanted to be able to throw the stones that killed the first martyr of the church, they wanted to be able to pitch those stones. So this is a grim reality. But they wanted to pitch those stones hard so they didn't want to be they didn't want to be hindered by their cloaks. So they took, off, they took off their cloaks so that they could throw the stones harder, so they could kill him faster. And they laid those cloaks down at the feet of this young Pharisee named Saul. I'm going to tell you, that doesn't mean that Saul was a passerby and didn't have anything else to do. And they just said, hey, buddy, I, I don't know who you are, but would you watch our clothes for us here? No. It means that Saul was the supervisor. It means that Saul was taking responsibility. It means that Saul was saying, chalk this one up to my credit. That's what it means. Saul even though he stood there and didn't cast a stone, he was taking credit for every single stone that was cast. He was the killer that day. But what Saul didn't realize, for all his knowledge of Scripture, he was blinded by hate. He didn't realize that he was reenacting a story that had happened in the Old Testament. And this is from 2 Chronicles chapter 24. 
It says, but they conspired against him. And by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he lay dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. The story here is that there were two cousins. Two cousins. One was Joash the king. And one was Zechariah, the son of the high priest. Joash had been orphaned when he was a little boy in a demonic purge that Jezebel's daughter, who had taken control of the throne of Judah, had perpetrated. She killed all the princes. She killed every single one of them. But Jehoiada, the high priest, rescued his nephew, Joash, from the time he was eight years old, raised him. Raised him in the courts of the Lord. When he was a baby, he really, he saved him when he was an infant. And when he was eight years old, he overthrew uh, Athaliah, the queen, and he set, he set Joash on the throne, and he raised him up. And Zechariah, the high priest's son, was cousin to the king, but he, they were like brothers. They are like brothers. They were raised like brothers. But once the high priest passed away, Joash the king turned away from the Lord. And Zechariah, his cousin, but really his brother, right? Really his brother, rose up just like Stephen did and rebuked him and said, you're, you're going away from the Lord. You shouldn't do this. And Joash had him stoned to death in the courts of the Lord. This is the last martyrdom of the Old Testament. Jesus even talks about it. Here's the punchline. As Zechariah lay dying, stoned to death, he looked up and he met Joash's eyes and said, may the Lord see this and call you to account. Saul now is Joash. He doesn't even realize it. And he's stoning this man to death for doing nothing other than confronting the wickedness of Israel. But look at the difference. Look at the new covenant. It says in verse 59, go back to Acts chapter 7, verse 59, it says, As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He reverses the curse of unforgiveness from the death of Zechariah. The last martyr of the Old Testament, stoned to death, and his dying words are, may the Lord see this and call you to the count. The first martyr of the New Testament, stoned to death for righteousness, and he looks up and he calls out and he says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Brothers and sisters, that's the lifeblood of the new covenant. It's forgiveness. It's irrational forgiveness. It's forgiveness that transcends reason. It's forgiveness that's supernatural, that goes beyond anything that human ability can accomplish. You're looking for a miracle? How many need a miracle? 
How many need a miracle? I need a miracle, but I want to tell you the greatest miracle has been worked. God has forgiven you your sin. He's forgiven you so far beyond your ability to grasp that it's going to take an eternity for you to get a hold of it. God is head over heels in love with you. And he has wiped away every last one of your stains and your sins. All you have to do is whisper the name of Jesus and he is all over it. This began a journey for Paul. Forces were put into effect when Stephen spoke those words, those dying words that were beyond Paul's brilliant mind to even fathom. To the eye, nothing changed. As a matter of fact, it got worse. We don't know how many precious new disciples of the Lord died at Paul's hands. The word of God says that he breathed out murder and threats. He later describes his own attitude, Paul's own words. He describes it as raging fury. He dragged away men and women. He went into their houses. We're talking about home invasions. He literally went into their houses and he ripped them from each other's arms and he dragged them away and he threw them in prison and when they came up to trial he cast his vote against them that they'd be put to death. Paul was so rabid that once he felt like it was sufficiently stamped out in Judea he heard that this was going on up in Damascus. Pull out your Bible. Look at the map. Look how far Damascus is. It's a long way today. It's going to take you some time in a car. He did it on foot. That's how drastic was his fierceness. But when he approached the city of Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to him. This story is so impactful, it's told three different times in the book of Acts. The light blinded him, knocked him down. His companions who were with him were bewildered. They heard a sound, they saw the light, but they couldn't understand the voice. Saul was taken by the hand, was brought into the city. You know, I love this story. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul's answer, who are you, Lord? <laughs> I know you're the Lord. <laughs> I thought I knew who the Lord was. <laughs> uh, I know you're him, but I don't know who you are. <laughs> who are you, Lord? <laughs> I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Stand on your feet. You'll be told what to do. Take him by the hand. 
They take him into the city. They take him into the house of a man named Judas. There's a lot of Jews, Judases running around those days, right? Not just Judas Iscariot. A lot of people named Judas. And there he got on his knees and he prayed for three days. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. Let me tell you, let me tell you how horrible it was what Saul of Tarsus did. Jesus then appeared to a man named Ananias and said, Ananias, I want you to go to the house of a man named Judas on Straight Street. And there, there's a man named Saul of Tarsus and he's praying. And you're to lay hands on him that he be restored. And it was so bad what Saul did, I think we gloss it over. Honestly, I do. It was so bad what Saul did that Ananias answered the Lord back. Now, if Jesus comes to you, right, how many are down for that? Vision from Jesus. Jesus shows up, says, hey, Samantha, I got something for you to do. I mean, it was almost a Jonah moment for Ananias. It's like, I'm not going to Nineveh. No way. Those are the bad guys. I'm not going helping them. That's what Ananias did. It was so bad what Paul did that Jesus explained himself to Ananias. I want to tell you, think about that. Has God ever explained himself to you? Is God really down with explaining? You're like, Lord, what are you doing? The Lord's like, okay, I'll explain. In this case, he did. That's how bad it was. Now, this is the beauty of forgiveness. Forgiveness is like, a, is like a river that we swim in. Because that word of the Lord went in, and the first words out of Ananias' mouth were Brother Saul. Brother Saul. That quick. That quick. God forgives. Quickly, completely, completely cleansed. Bro, that quick, Brother Saul. Lays hands on him. Scales fall from his eyes. He gets up and he's baptized. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus. He eats something, recovers his strength, and then he becomes a preaching machine. He starts preaching immediately about the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is a paradox. Paul is a walking paradox. Because Paul never loses sight of his crimes. There are five recorded instances in the New Testament where he brings up what he did. Five recorded instances. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I don't deserve to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, as for zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, he says I was a persecutor and a blasphemer and a violent man. I'm the chief of sinners. Brothers and sisters, that's 25 years after this stuff happened. Twice 
In the book of Acts, he tells this story, and he talks about it. Stephen, I don't want to say haunted him, because that makes it sound like he didn't understand that he was forgiven. He did. But Stephen was on his mind. You can read in the book of Acts, where he's recounting his story in Jerusalem, and he was kneeling in prayer, and the Lord Jesus appeared to him, and he says, the blood of Stephen, your witness, is on my hands. He remembered it. What did Jesus say? The one who is forgiven much loves much. Paul This is the irony of the gospel, saints. Why would God choose this villain? I'm going to tell you by spiritual heritage, you're in the faith because of this man. Because he's the one who plowed the way to go to the Gentiles. Anybody here a pure-blood Jew? Anybody? We're a Gentile church. And we exist because of the work of the Holy Spirit in this man. What, what, what is this about? God reversed. God showed the power of reversal in the Apostle Paul. And it wasn't lost on Paul. He had to grapple with the forgiveness that is found in Christ. This Conversion on the road to Damascus was the beginning of a journey for him. He began to understand. It had to be revealed to him. The word of God says that he had multiple visionary experiences. That vision on the road to Damascus, the one that I referred to where he was praying in Jerusalem after he came to Jerusalem. This was several years later. At least three years later, he went to Jerusalem. That's where he describes that in Galatians chapter 1 where that's where he went and he met Peter. Barnabas, the people were like, oh, I'm not going near him. After three years, they're like, I'm not, I'm not touching the guy. He's, and Barnabas went and got him, incorporated him into the church. But in that visit, that two-week visit, God said, Jesus appeared to him and said, you got to get out of here. They're not going to accept you. And so that's when he went away. And it was years later that Barnabas got him again and took him to Antioch. Second vision. During that time, he had another one that he said, it was so glorious, it was so powerful, he was caught up to the third heaven, he wasn't even allowed to tell everything that he saw. It was so transcendent. But through these visions and through these these experiences with the Lord, God revealed to him the power of the cross. This passage that we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of them, but it's not the only one, not by a long shot. This is where sometimes it's heavy on people to read through and understand Paul's thought in the book of Romans, to understand what he's really saying in his epistles, to understand what he's saying when he talks about justification by faith, when he talks about the power of forgiveness. But I'm going to tell you what, he, what the, the lowdown of what it means. Most Christians today still don't get it. Still think that forgiveness is something that comes and goes. And, what, and, and whether you're forgiven depends kind of on how you feel. 
But the Apostle Paul understood the redeeming power of the blood of Jesus Christ, the power of the new birth. Here he says you're a new creation. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about that in a later message. But he, he, he drives home that forgiveness is the redeeming power of God. It's redemption. It's a state of being. Most Christians, I'm just being candid with you, most Christians understand forgiveness kind of like we understand the weather. Right? I mean, if it's cloudy, if it's rainy, there's snow, yeah, there's ice, you know, like, well, things are bad, you know. I'm not forgiven. I mean, you might have had a bad day. I'm telling I'm being completely serious here. You know, you eat a meal that doesn't sit right with you, you sleep bad, you have a bad dream right before you wake up, you get up, the weather's lousy, you know, you get mad, you kick the cat, you know, you honk at somebody, they cut you off, you lose your temper, and that means you're not forgiven. Because of the mood you're in. It's like the weather. Slightly more mature Christians might kind of understand it as kind of the what state you're in. Kind of, you know, like you live in Camas, but you work in Portland, you know. And so, like, you know, when you're in Camas, you feel forgiven. But over there in Portland, who? I mean, it's this kind of, you know, Paul came to understand and came to teach that forgiveness isn't like the weather. It's not about what county you're in. It's in your DNA. He's transformed you. He has transformed you. He has called you by name. The blood of Jesus flows through your veins. He's adopted you into the family of God, and you are forgiven. Capital F. He has washed away your sins. He has cleansed you. He has purified you, and he has made you clean. I want to read some passages to you printed them out so I don't need to flip around in my Bible. But let me, let, me just, let me just read these. And I want you to listen. I want you to hear. And we can pull these up. Psalm 103, starting in verse 8, it says this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. I, I, I could park on that one for all, all day. Because the enemy, he wants you to think that the Lord is ungracious, that he's quick to anger, and that his love, he hands it out very, very miserly. But this is the word of the Lord. This is the Old Testament. This is before Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide meaning he's not going to always scold, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love 
toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Aren't you glad it doesn't say as far as the north is from the south? Because there's a limit to that. It comes a point where you're going north, you start going south again. But you can go east forever, and you'll never reach the west. How did they know that? How did David know that when he wrote this psalm? He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As far as the east is from the west. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He knows. He knows. He knows what we're made of. He's a forgiving God. Isaiah Chapter 43, verse 25, if you can pull that one up. It says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Whenever it has that double I, he's emphasizing it. I, I'm the one. You know what he's saying? He's saying it's his idea to forgive you. I don't think there's anybody under the sound of my voice right now who hasn't at times gone to the Lord like my, like my dog comes to me. When, when, when my dog's done a boo-boo, you know what I'm talking about? I got a little dog, a little white mini schnauzer. He's being bad. I'm like, Snowy, right here. I put my finger like this into the carpeting. And he creeps on his belly, and then he takes his nose and nudges my finger, you know. I want to tell you, for the times I've sinned against the Lord, Snowy is the model of dignity compared to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, oh, God, if I could crawl under the ground, I would. It's like, I, I wish I could be a mole right now. And, you know... I need forgiveness so bad. I know it's the last thing on your mind, Lord. I know, I know that I don't deserve it. I know that you don't want to forgive me, but I'm begging for it. That's all wrong. All of us have felt that way, but that's all wrong. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions and, for, and remembers your sins no more. He's the forgiving God. He's the God who forgives. It's his idea. The cross is his idea. You know how we know it? Because none of us would have thought of it. None of us never. It would have entered in the darkest corner of our imagination to think of the Son of God dying for our sins. It's his idea. It doesn't mean that we walk, waltz into his presence, all puffed up and cocky and say, all right, lay it on me, Lord. Give me some forgiveness and I'll be on my way. No. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. But get it, he will not despise it. When we approach him in contrition, he's, he is all about that forgiveness. He is all about that forgiveness. I remember my father, Christian man, flawed, like all fathers are, but he was a Christian man. And I remember the time it stuck his expression on his face where he, talks about, he talked about the forgiving nature of God and the love of the Father. Oh, God, I've, I've sinned. I've, I've, I've failed you. And he said, the Father is going to say, it's okay. Come on back. Come on back. That's the Father. He just wants you on his lap. 
you know, he just wants to embrace you. He just wants to hold you. He just wants to give you a kiss. He's a, he's a forgiving, loving father. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22 says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like the mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Notice, what, notice the order there, saints. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. That's the order. He doesn't say, return to me, and then I'll redeem you. Get it? He doesn't say, I'll redeem you when you return to me. He says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. I've already redeemed you, so come on back. It's already paid for. This is the message that Joseph has been preaching on, on Wednesday nights when he's talked about the comparison with other world religions. And we're, we're not speaking a hateful message against anybody. We're speaking a message of hope and love. The message of the cross is the only message that starts out with absolutely good news. And the good news is your debt is paid. That's our opening line. That's what Paul is talking about. He says, Jesus died for all, therefore all have died. Another, all have died, believe it, that's good news. Sounds like it's bad news, but it's, it's the best of news. Because it means God counts every single person in the world through the cross as dead to sin. It means the debt is paid out of the blocks. And people who don't get to heaven, it's because they didn't cash in that coupon. But it's yours. It's for free. It's an unbelievable message. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, it says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. That's what God delights in. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I remember somebody once said, when I was a baby Christian, said, he's cast your sins into the depths of the sea. For goodness sake, don't go fishing. <laughs> They're down there. Leave them there. This is the paradox of Paul. Paul knew that he was the chief of sinners, but he said, God did this in me, the chief of sinners, so that I might serve as a model for those who would hope in him. He was able to say, and never, never, never be in denial. He was never in denial. He was never like, oh, no, that was, oh, no. Was, I changed my name. That's why I changed my name. One of the big, mis, big myths about Paul, about Paul, that he changed, but Paul was a conversion name from Saul. He, he went by both of those names all his life long, because depending on what world he was in, whether he's in the Jewish world or the Greek world. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to play it incognito. He never forgot where he came from. But at the same time, he said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. God has forgiven you. It's his idea. He's nuts about you. He loves you. He wants you to be near to him. You were worth the price of the blood of his son. Now, I'm going to tell you, over the years, I've known many Christians Precious, devout people. People who, who are faithful in the church. They're givers to the church. They serve in the church. 
but they're carrying a yoke that they don't need to carry. Because they haven't been able to rise up and grasp the miracle of forgiveness, they're hindered. They're hindered. And there's an edge to them. Sometimes, I, I, I remember a preacher saying, hey, if you ever run into a Christian, they're a Christian, they're in the church, and they're just mean. There's an edge to them. They're just mean. He said, he spoke in absolute mercy. He said, it's just, they just haven't gotten that God's forgiven them. God's forgiven them. God's forgiven them all their sins. I want to ask Pastor Joseph to come to the piano, and I want us to pray. I prayed in this sanctuary last night for everybody that would be here today. I prayed over each section, and I found out this morning that Brother Ken, our resident evangelist, he was in here before I was. He left about 15 minutes before I came here, and he was in praying over all the seats. Our prayer is that God would fill you with a spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him. That the light of God would pour out in your life and you'd understand, you'd have a revelation of how deep is God's love towards you and how bottomless is his forgiveness towards you. I just want to ask this morning, if you're here and you're like, God, I believe this word. I believe your word, but I struggle with truly understanding and getting that open heaven. You know, I'm just going to ask everybody. I'm going to ask you. If you're able, I'd like you to come up around the front. I'd like you to come up around the front. If you're able, I'd like you to stand up, and I'd like you just to come down here to the front if you're able. I just want us to draw near as a body, as a body. I want us to draw near to the Lord. I just want us to draw near. I know that might be a little bit strange, but I I think there's a step that's taken. There's a step that's taken as we draw near to the Lord and we just say, God, if you're able, if you're able, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Saints, the sky is the limit on what God can do through a person and through a body that truly understands that they've been forgiven of the Lord. Somebody who knows that they know that they know that they know that God has forgiven them. They become a conduit for God's blessing. They become a, a channel for the power of the Holy Spirit, just like the Apostle Paul. I want you to just right where you are, begin to call on God in your own words and ask God that he reveal in a way that you haven't understood yet the power of his love and his forgiveness towards you. Now, Heavenly Father, right now, as your saints are praying, as they're seeking your face, Father, I pray for each and every one of them God, I pray that the anointing of the Holy Spirit would overwhelm each one. Father, let the power of God rest upon 
every soul, every family, and upon this whole church. God, that you would release your blessing, Lord God, that the miracle of forgiveness would become the greatest reality in our life. I want to tell you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the authority of his name, his blood, and his word, that you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven for, for offenses that you committed this morning and offenses that you committed as a little child and everything in between. God has forgiven you. You are clean. There is nothing bad between you and God. You could walk into the pit of hell itself and the devil would run from you because you are clean. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is upon you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, in Jesus' name, according to his word, I appoint you all as ambassadors of reconciliation. You have received the forgiveness of God. You belong to him at the bottom of your being. And now you can proclaim the message of forgiveness to everybody else. God bless your people today. Bless them and fill them with your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name.